Good morning, everyone. Let's hear it for the kids one more time. I love that. For those of you that don't know, my name is Phil Hahn. I have had the privilege of filling in for Pastor Greg for the last few weeks. Um, and today we're going to wrap up our series, Jesus in Genesis. So over the past five weeks, we have been on a journey through the book of Genesis. The purpose of this series has been to use scripture to make much of Jesus. That's been our goal uh, since Father's Day. And today is not any different. Despite the fact that the name Jesus never shows up in the Old Testament anywhere, in any of the 39 books, he is in every single one of them. You've heard me say, and, and many, many preachers have got up and, and given you a list of, of the things that Jesus is in each one of the books. I'm not going to go and do that today, but he is in every book. But as I've said many times, I love the book of Genesis. The book of beginnings, it's where we get our foundation. The second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, is found over and over again in the book of Genesis. Yet his name isn't there. The reason his name isn't there is because he did not take on flesh until the incarnation. So his, that name was not used until he was actually born into the earth as a man. So we won't find that name anywhere. But he is there. In several ways, and each of those ways are 100% verified in various other places in Scripture. All right, Jimmy, you messing with me? I'm using a different mic today, guys, though. If it scratches, I'm sorry. Um, so, being that he's found in other parts of Scripture that prove him in Genesis, what is our one rule that we've learned over the past five weeks of how to interpret Scripture? Does anybody remember? What do we do? Scripture interprets Scripture. That's right. So we use the clear text to help us understand the texts that are a little bit harder to understand, to understand exactly what God is trying to show us. So that's our thing. We're not going to change from that. So as you guys begin to study the Word on your own, and you're, you're going through different passages, and you're reading, and you're like, I really don't get this. Just know that God has used another place in Scripture to help you understand what that Scripture is talking about. So we began this series by starting with the beginning of everything. Jesus is the creator of all things. Genesis is the book of beginnings, as I said a few moments ago. So where else would you start but with chapter 1 and verse 1? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth and everything on it started with the voice of God. You may have heard this before, but it fits here. Many people claim to believe in the Big Bang Theory. Well, I myself believe in the Big Bang Theory. This is how it works. God spoke, and bang, it happened. You can take that one as free. God spoke, and bang, it happened. So, yeah, there is a Big Bang Theory. It's just not the one you read in science books. In verses 1 and 2 of Genesis, we do find the Trinity. The Hebrew word for God I've mentioned before is Elohim. It is a plural noun. It's best translated in English as the word gods. The Bible is consistent, however, in clarifying that God is one. So why did Moses, the author of Genesis, use Elohim to describe the creator in Genesis chapter 1? The English can be rather deceiving. 
This plural noun, Elohim, is used in conjunction with a, plural, a singular verb, created. So when God created the heavens and the earth, it's literally in English, if you translate it literally, it says God's created. Well, that doesn't fit in English. So that's why sometimes you have to dig a little deeper and someone may need to teach you a little bit about Hebrew. I listen to a, a certain teacher that's a teacher in what's called the Zerah Avraham uh, Institute in Israel. And that's how I learn a little bit about Hebrew because he's really on it. And that's kind of how I get my understanding of Hebrew. So it helps to, it helps to do a little bit dig, deeper dive into some of these things. Elohim is no different. We need to understand what that word actually means. So when it appears and it, it's in scripture and it says that there are multiple gods, it's not saying there are multiple gods. It's saying that there are multiple persons of the one true God. Very important to note that because that's where our foundation for our faith actually starts is knowing who God is. And then verse 2 tells us that the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters as there was nothing going on yet. And that shows us that the Trinity is right there in the very beginning. So since Jesus is not mentioned by name in Genesis 1, how can we know that he's indeed the creator of all things? We use other passages. That's what we do. So we build doctrines off of strong, firm, clear understanding of the word. And then we use other passages to build on that doctrine. So to build Jesus as creator, we can't just use Genesis 1. If we started there alone, we wouldn't have really much to go on. And I've said that before. So what we do is we go to the New Testament. And the New Testament opens with four books. They're called the Gospels. And in those books, those are eyewitnesses' account of Jesus' life and ministry. So the fourth book was written by the apostle that bears its name, John. Chapter 1 of John opens with a very familiar phrase. It says, in the beginning. So John, wanting to show who Jesus is throughout his whole gospel, his focus was, in the beginning, God. So in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was, the word was with God, and the Word was God. That's John 1.1. 1, 1. So in Genesis, in the beginning, being spoken of is the creation of the heavens and the earth. And John, the beginning being spoken of is God. So when we read in the beginning was, in the beginning God created, you can just stop right at in the beginning God. Because God is outside of time, space, and matter. He is the only thing that could actually create what we're on right now. Because he's not part of this earth. He's outside of time, space, and matter. So he's able to create. But after John 1.1, 1, 1, it doesn't stop. It says, through him all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. Verse 14 of John 1 says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. This word that John speaks of is none other than Jesus Christ himself, the sinless son of God. That word was not a created word. He created everything. He's always existed and will never cease to exist. Jesus is the creator of the heavens and the earth. In week two, we learn that Jesus is the seed of promise that is prophesied in Genesis 3.15. Satan comes on the scene in Genesis chapter 3, and he tries to turn everything on its head. And of course, he seduces Eve, and what does she do? She eats from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, thanks to her, everybody... Thanks, Eve. Every human being is born with a sin nature, separated from a holy God. But God does love those he created. 
So to solve the problem of sin, he had a plan for redemption. He cursed the serpent and he told Satan exactly what would happen to him. He'd crawl around on his belly and eat the dust of the earth. And by crawling on his belly and eating dust, he's eating death because that dust had no life until God breathed the life into Adam as we talked about in week two. God said that he would put enmity or a wedge between Satan and the woman, between his seed and hers, which then makes me ask the question, what is the seed it's talking about? Women don't have seed. We talked about how apart from a man, there's no way a woman's going to have a baby. She does all the work, but we had to play a little part. So she can't have a seed, but that doesn't stop God. The woman would have a seed, and that seed would come from God the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came upon the Virgin Mary. She conceived a child. In Matthew chapter 1, we find the genealogy that tells us the story from Abraham to Jesus, how that line, that seed of promise was never taken away. All throughout the Old Testament, you see these different people groups that the Israelites are supposed to take over or that attack the Israelites. The whole purpose of that was that Satan was after the seed of promise. He wanted to destroy Israel. If you read the book of Esther, we talked about how Haman, who was his family, his family line was supposed to be completely destroyed by the first king of Israel, Saul, and Saul failed. He refused to do what he was told to do by God. And of course, that later almost annihilates when the Israelites when they're in captivity and the king of Persia has to be faced with Esther and she begs for mercy. And of course, she was just what they needed at such a time as that. So we see that ultimately the seed of promise comes through the line of Abraham, through the line of Judah, which is what we'll focus on today. And our penalty for sin has been paid for on the cross. In week three, we learn from Genesis 14 that Jesus is truly our great high priest. We learn that Melchizedek was the king of Salem and the priest of God Most High. Melchizedek visited Abram after he had destroyed the kings, the four-king alliance that had come against five other kings, and his nephew Lot had been taken captive. Of course, that's a, that's a good reason for you to go after somebody if they take one of your family members, right? I don't know how many of us wouldn't want to step up and make that, make that sacrifice. And Abram did. He meets Melchizedek. Of course, he, Melchizedek tells him, he blesses him. And he is, the thing we need to understand about Melchizedek is he is a priest of God Most High. However, he's not an Aaronic priest. We talked about the difference between the Aaronic priesthood and the Melchizedek priesthood. An Aaronic priesthood, that priest, they would make sacrifices all day long in the tabernacle, and then when the temple was built, they would make those sacrifices in the temple. Guys, imagine if you're in the temple, and you're the priest that has to serve for that day, and you're having to do all these sacrifices. Do you think your wife wants to see you at the end of the day? That's probably pretty gross, I'm just saying. But that's not the same thing with, G with the Melchizedek priesthood. Melchizedek didn't offer sacrifices. He didn't need to, because ultimately... He is a picture of Jesus. He's not Jesus. A lot of people get that confused. He's not Jesus. He's just a man. But he came in the order of Melchizedek. So, that being said, Jesus later, when we read in Hebrews, he comes in that same order. Jesus is not only a king, but he's also a priest. He's our high priest forever. He lives to intercede for us. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding on us day after day, moment after moment. That high priest would go and sprinkle the high priest of the Aaronic priesthood would go and sprinkle the blood on the 
on the mercy seat, which is on the Ark of the Covenant, which was in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle, and ultimately in the temple. And that worked for a day. You know, we would have the Day of Atonement. It's called Yom Kippur. It happens in October, I believe, this year. And what they would do is they would go, they would sacrifice one particular animal, and then the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies that one time a year, and he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. And that was supposed to cover the sins of the people for one year. But they also had daily sacrifices that had to be done. Over and over and over again, animal after animal after animal being killed, slaughtered on the, on the altar so that the people could be right with God. The problem is those sacrifices were never good enough. That's why the Melchizedek priesthood is different from the Aaronic priesthood. In AD 70, the temple was destroyed. There are no longer any more sacrifices in Israel. So what are they doing? How are they making up for not giving the sacrifices they need to give every day? Well, it's now simply just a party. They just have a, they just have a celebration on Yom Kippur, and they, they do various religious activities that are supposed to live up to the sacrifices that they were supposed to be doing. The problem is we don't need that sacrifice anymore because Jesus is our great high priest. He made that sacrifice for us. We don't have to we don't have to take animals and have them slaughtered because our, our lamb of God has been slaughtered for us. So we don't need a high priest. We have the high priest in the order of Melchizedek, and that's Jesus. And then last week, we learned that Jesus appeared in the Old Testament in a pre-incarnate bodily form as the angel of the Lord. He brought messages to Old Testament saints to proclaim future events and give commands on what these individuals were to do. The angel of the Lord spoke in the name of God. He received worship as God and revealed truth that God alone could reveal. The angel of the Lord I mentioned is mentioned 57 times in the Old Testament, five of which are found in Genesis. I've told you that the Hebrew word for angel is malach, which means nothing but messenger. <clears throat> Only the context of a passage can reveal what an what type of being an angel actually is. I explained that it's not an ontological term, meaning it does not tell us what its nature is based off of just the word malak or angel. We have to see what the context says to know what kind of being it is. And I explained to you that the being, it can either be a supernatural creature, which is a heavenly thing, or it can actually be a human representative, which we find when Jezebel sends one of her, one of her you know, minions, I'll call them, to go and, and send a message. He was called a malak because he's just a simple messenger. And God himself is even referred to as an angel in, on one occasion in the book of Malachi, which ironically, Malachi is the name, malak is the, the main form of that, that name. So the word simply means messenger. But once Jesus took on flesh, we no longer see any appearance of the angel of the Lord. In the New Testament, some people may say that the words angel of the Lord do come up, and they do, but you never hear it with the definite article the. The angel of the Lord doesn't appear. Why? Because Jesus is the angel of the Lord. And once he's come on the scene, why do we need the angel of the Lord to do any more work? The human form has actually come, and he no longer needs to be represented by an angelic being. So that angel of the Lord is nowhere to be found. Which brings us to today, today's message. Jesus is the King of Kings. All four of the previous truths from this series are vital to proving that Jesus is the King of Kings. 
But the fact that Jesus is the seed of promise is the most vital of them all. The seed of promise was to come to put that wedge, that enmity between Satan and humanity. The seed of promise was guaranteed to overcome Satan's schemes against God and against humanity. The seed who would ultimately become the Messiah had to meet several criteria. Most important of the criteria was that the Messiah had to come through the line of Judah. So I want you to turn to Genesis 49, and we'll start there. Now we're going to dig, we're going to run through some scripture, and I won't keep you too long, but you know, it's my last, it's my last week with you for, until Greg needs me again, so you know, we might be here until 8 o'clock, I'm just kidding, no we're not. Genesis chapter 49. In this chapter, the patriarch Jacob, who was later named Israel by God, gathers his sons, his, his 12 sons, to bless them and then to prophesy over them about future coming events. In verses 1 through 7, we find out about the first three sons, the oldest son Reuben, his brother Simeon, and his brother Levi. Now these three, in most cultures, the firstborn son means something great. But these knuckleheads decided that they would forfeit their right as their first, second, and third born son. In Genesis chapter 34, we find a story about the only daughter of Jacob, Israel. His daughter's name is Dina. It looks like Dinah, but it's Dina. And Dina was actually captured. She was taken captive and she was raped by a guy named Shechem. And Shechem decided after he raped her, he, he fell in love with her. So he wanted to marry her. And the two knucklehead brothers, Simeon and Levi, they're really angry. And we find that in this first few verses of chapter 49. They were really angry, and this is their sister. They wanted to avenge what happened to her. And keep in mind, she didn't come home after she got raped. They kept her. They didn't give her back. So they were not happy about the situation. So they took it upon themselves to say, you know what, we got an idea. We'll intermarry with you, and we'll... You know, you can have our daughters, we can have your daughters, and we'll, we'll put all of, our, all of our resources together, and we'll just have a, you know, we'll, we'll live together here in this land. But they had, this, was all a, this was all a ploy. So their idea was, this is how I'll know, we'll know that you've, you're going to live like us. This is what they told the, the people in Shechem. And ultimately they said, if you get circumcised, we'll know. That you're gonna that you're gonna live with us, and and we'll be able to inter, intermarry and interact together. But that's right, Jimmy. They got him because, of course, what happened on the third day? Keep that in mind. On the third day, when they were still in great pain from these circumcisions, because every one of these boneheaded guys thought this was a good idea. Simeon and Levi go into the into the town, and they kill every male that lived there. And they took the plunder. They took all the spoils. They took everything they had. So this really didn't sit well with their father Jacob. Jacob said, you've, you know, you've made my name a stench to these people. And he was afraid that they would bring trouble on them. So they forfeited, even though they're the second and third, they forfeited their position in the family line. But even worse, the oldest brother Reuben... In chapter 35 of Genesis, he decides that he wants to make a mockery of his father. So he goes and, and lies with 
his, essentially his stepmother, Bilhah, and he defiles the bed of Jacob by being with one of his, his wives. So he forfeits his right as the firstborn son. That brings us to Judah, the fourth son. And that's where I'm going to pick up the story. So Genesis 49, I'm going to begin in verse 8. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, old Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Let, like a lion, he crouches and lies down, like a lioness who dares to rouse him. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes of, in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. Unlike his brothers, Judah does not receive a rebuke. Israel speaks positively about Judah. And the text reveals to us that his brothers would bow down to him and praise him. Now, we don't actually see this in Genesis because we don't get much about Judah in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 37, we have a shift from the story about Jacob and what happened with him and how he met his wives and how his children were born. And it shifts to Joseph, his 11th born son. Joseph is a picture of Jesus in the Old Testament. But we get a break. So all of Genesis from 37 to 50 is about Joseph. But in chapter 38, we get, a little, we get a little snippet about Judah. And we find out how Judah has two sons, two twin sons. And his twin sons are born to him to his actual daughter-in-law because Judah was kind of a bonehead in a sense that he gave one of his sons to this girl in marriage. That son was evil in the eyes of the Lord. He gets killed. And then the next born son, what would happen is the way it works in the in Hebrew culture is if you are, if a guy has a wife, but he doesn't have any kids with her, he dies. The next son, his brother that's next in line would then take her. They would have a baby and that baby would carry the name of the, of the first son. Well, the second son, he did something really awful. I'm not even going to go into it. And it was evil in the eyes of the Lord and God put him to death. So then the third son that Judah had was much younger than the other two. So he said, when he gets old enough he'll take you to be his wife and he'll give you, you know, a, a child through him. Well, of course, Judah, the son's really young. He's scared to death. Like, this lady's already got two of my kids, kids killed. He thinks she's the widow maker. So he waits and he has no intention of sending his third son to be with her. So she lives, essentially, in mourning. She goes home to her family. She lives in mourning. And... Time goes by, but ultimately Judah decides, I'm going to go hang out with my friends. And he goes by, and he, he actually sees her. She dresses up. She hears he's coming. She dresses herself up, takes off her mourning clothes, and she um, veils her face. And he thinks she's a prostitute, so he hires her. And she says, what will you give me? Well, he gives her three things, and those three things, he's supposed to bring her a goat, and then he'll get his three things back to prove who he was. Well, she's smarter than him, so he, he sends a servant to go back, and she's already changed back into her morning clothes. She's not, think, she's waiting to see what happens. The guy comes, his servant, Judah's servant, and the guy's like, I couldn't find anybody. Where is this girl? They're like, there's no, there's no prostitute here. We don't know what you're talking about. So he goes back to Judah. Judah says, 
Oh, well, I guess I'm good to go. Well, turns out, no, you're not, because guess what? His, now his daughter-in-law is pregnant. She's pregnant, and they want to stone her because she's pregnant, because she's not married to anybody. So how did she get pregnant? She had to do it out of wedlock. She had to commit adultery. So they want to stone her. Judah says, well, by all means, stone her. Why? Because it would cover him, right? He gets there, and she tells them, the man who owns these things is the one who I'm pregnant by. Judah's got, right? Here's what happens. She gets pregnant. Judah takes her into his house after getting caught, and she has the twins. When those twins are born, the seed of promise continues on. That's the whole purpose of Genesis 38, stuck right in the middle of 37 and 39 through 50. So Judah gets this little piece. So that tells us why Judah continues the seed of promise. A lot to share, but I think it's necessary. Now, for some Jews, they don't believe the seed of promise has been fulfilled. Many Jews today believe that Jesus is not who he says he was. So they're still in their sin. And ultimately, they reject Jesus as the Messiah. They don't believe that he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. I want you to focus in on verse 10. Verse 10 is our key verse for today. It says that the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Now, what is a scepter? Have you guys ever, like, you know, watched any movies with kings? I'm sure everybody has. The scepter is the thing he holds in his hand. It's like a little staff. But that little staff means something. So I mentioned Esther. When she went before King Xerxes and he, she went to plead for her people, he had a scepter in his hand. And if he didn't put that scepter out in front of her when she knelt before him, guess what would happen to her? She would have been killed. Because that scepter was the king's way of approving something. He would use that scepter as a, as a way of approving something. You'd also have what's called a signet ring, which he would put a stamp on things to say that his hand is upon that. But in this case, the scepter is what he's talking about. This is what's not going to depart from Judah. Now, after that part about the scepter, the second half of the verse 10 is a messianic prophecy. Some translations, that even the one I read, the NIV, reads, until he comes. But in the, in the, in the Hebrew language, it's until Shiloh comes. Shiloh is a name for heavenly peace. The Messiah came to bring heavenly peace. Jesus came that we would have peace with God. He is, in Isaiah, the prince of peace. Jesus came to die for our sins, come back to life on the third day, that we would have peace with God. Now, how can we know that this prophecy about the tribe of Judah is actually about Jesus? Well, we need help from other scripture. That's what I've been pouring in, hopefully, by the end of today, everybody knows that Scripture interprets Scripture and that you'll be able to understand Scripture based off of what the rest of the Bible says. So, in 1 Samuel, the people of Israel demand that Samuel should give them a king. And God is, of course, offended by this because to him, he's their king. But they plead and plead, and God says, okay, give them what they ask for. This king will oppress them. But give them what they ask for. They want to be like all the other nations. They want to reject me as king. This is God. I'll give them a king. 
So he goes to the, he sends him to the tribe of Benjamin, and he finds a handsome man, a head taller than everybody else, and he's hiding. He doesn't want, he realizes that Samuel, the prophet, is, that, is coming to see him. He hides, but they find him, and Saul is made king of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, if kings are supposed to come from Judah, we got a little bit of a problem, don't we? Because God's first choice as king of Israel was from the tribe of Benjamin. So how on earth will this continue? How will the seed of promise come through? How will we have that kingly line restored? Well, the good news is God is omniscient. He knows all things. He knew what Saul would do. He knew that Saul would not take out Agag and the Amalekites. He knew that he would not answer the call on his life, that he would not follow the command of God. So then ultimately, he rejects Saul as king, and he chooses one in his place. He takes a, a little farmer named Jesse, and he sends Samuel to Jesse. And of course, Samuel's a little scared, because when God says to go here, he's like, whoa, if I go here and I anoint somebody else, Saul's going to take off my head. And God says, oh, he's going to protect him. He sends Samuel on his way. Samuel follows. Because Samuel, as a prophet of God, never said no. He always went. He's a good example for us. When God says it, you do it. So he gets, to the, he gets to where he's going to find Jesse and to get to see his sons. And Jesse says, yeah, I've got seven sons. And well, bring them all here. Let me consecrate them. Pray over them anoint them, and then let me bring them, and we'll have a feast, and then, you know, I'll tell you what I'm here for. So Samuel gets ready, and Jesse brings his seven sons, and the first son is just awesome, the oldest son. And Samuel's like, that's got to be the guy. And God says, don't look at the outward appearance of man. Look at what I look at. I look at the heart. So he says, this is not the one. So the second son comes. Is this the one? No. Third son, is this the one? No. All the way down to the seventh son, is this the one? No. Why am I here? Samuel's freaking out because he doesn't understand. God sent him to get one of Jesse's sons. He says to Jesse, do you have another son? Yeah, the youngest, but he's out tending the sheep. Go and get him, Samuel says, and then we will worship. Brings David, and God says, that's the one. That's the one that is going to be the king that takes over for Saul. That's the one that the seed of promise is going to come through. That's the one. Anoint him as king over Israel. Second Samuel, I'll flip there. You can turn if you'd like to. In Second Samuel, chapter 7, this is what it says. I'm reading in the latter half of verse 11. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. He's speaking of David. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed, to succeed you, Sorry, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him. Skipping down. Verse 15, but my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house, this is verse 16, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. King David 
is the king of all kings that we look to before Jesus came on the scene. King David, it says, is a man, was a man after God's own heart. King David lived for God. Now, he had some rough times. He was not a very good dad. He wasn't the best husband because he had a lot of wives. But he was a man after God's own heart. When David messed up, when he sinned, you'll find all throughout the Psalms that David knew he recognized his sin. And you know what he did? Every time, he fell on his face before God. When he took Bathsheba, who was a married woman, and he took her as his wife while her husband was still around, he then kills her husband and has him killed in battle. But then when he's confronted about his sin, do you know what he does? Psalm 51 falls before God on his knees, face down to the ground. Because David understood that apart from a Savior, he was nothing. He knew that the only way that he could live is to live for God and not against him. And God says here that his kingdom is going to endure forever and that he'll have a son and that son will sit on his throne. That son, of course, we find out is Solomon, the wisest person to ever live apart from Jesus. And Solomon would reign in place of David and he would be a good king, but ultimately he would be led astray because he would have 700 wives and 300 concubines, 1,000 women. Who has time for that? I'm, I'm glad I got blessed with a good one. So anybody, anybody else, guys? Amen. Good wife? All right, let's go. His kingdom would endure forever. This simply means that the final ruler is going to be from the line of the tribe of Judah. In Psalm 89, I told you I'm going to be bouncing around, so you got to stick with me. We good? Everybody good? Oh, man, that was sweet. Psalm 89. This is what it says. If I can get to it. My Bible's falling apart, guys. That's like a good thing or a bad thing. Probably a good thing, right, Dennis? Verse 1, Psalm 89. I will sing of the Lord's great love forever. With my mouth I will make your faithfulness known through all generations. I will declare that your love stands firm forever, that you established your faithfulness in heaven itself. You said, I made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your line forever and make your throne firm through all generations. And then skip down to verse 20. And this is what it says. I have found David, my servant. With my sacred oil, I have anointed him. My hand will sustain him. Surely my arm will strengthen him. No enemy will, be, will subject him to tribute. No wicked man will oppress him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down his adversaries. My faithful love will be with him, and through my name, his horn will be exalted. I will set his hand over the sea, his right hand over the rivers. He will call out to me, you are my father, my God, my rock, and my savior. I will also appoint him my firstborn, the most exalted of all kings of the earth. I will maintain my love to him forever, and my covenant with him will never fail. I will establish his line forever, his throne, as long as the heavens endure. Once again, we're reminded of the covenant between God and David and his house. The scepter will not depart from Judah. The kingdom will endure forever. Verse 24 says that God's faithful love will be with him, and through his name, David's, his horn will be exalted who is this horn that would later be exalted? 
horn here signifies a strong one. The strong one is none other than Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God. In Matthew 9, 27 through 31, two blind men are standing by the wayside and Jesus is coming through and they scream out, Have mercy on us, Son of David! Why do they call him Son of David? Because they know that the Son of David is the Messiah, God in the flesh, who could come and heal them of their afflictions. They understood that the Son of David was who the Messiah would be. They understood the prophecy that says that Judah, the scepter will never depart from Judah, and that the line of David will be the kingly line that the Messiah comes through. So that's what they call him out to be. And of course, Jesus responds in kind, and he says, what do you want me to do for you? We want to see. And he heals them. And they see, and their eyes are opened, and they can see the face of the Messiah. He healed them because of their faith. In Christ, God's plans never fail. His plans are true, and they always come to pass. His throne is established forever in Christ. This is why the Bible says that when Jesus ascended into heaven, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. In the Old Testament, the priests that we talked about, they stood all day long. They never stopped sacrificing animals all day long. Until the end of the day when the sacrifices were all given, that and that time alone was when the priests were able to finally sit down. And wash the blood off of their hands and their body. And that could never be enough. They were always on their feet. But when Jesus ascended to heaven, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. To show us that it is finished. When he was on the cross, that was one of his statements. It is finished. Why? Because there was no more sacrifice needed. He was the sacrifice that was needed, and that's all there is to it. This, this sitting down signifies that his work was finished after the cross, resurrection, and ascension. Now, once again, we established in week two that Jesus is definitely this seed of promise that was going to ultimately come to save the world. Jesus is fully God and fully man. We find that truth in Matthew 1 and Luke 3. Jesus is a direct descendant of Judah. That's the whole point of reading that long genealogy of really hard names. You guys remember that? He is the king of kings. Turn to Revelation chapter 5 if you, if you do have a Bible with you. You don't have to be afraid of this book. Listen to what it says starting in verse 1. Revelation 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep, see. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. At this time in history, 
Judgment is imminent. Who is the only one worthy to break the seals? When the lamb breaks that first seal, judgment will fall. And why is this lamb worthy to open that seal? Verse 9 says that Jesus bought men with his blood. He shed his blood for the sake of those he loved. And what do we know from John 3? That Jesus died. God so loved the world. John chapter 3, verse 16. That he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Now, why does any of this matter in the grand scheme of things? We've been going through all this, and I've been pouring into you what the Scripture says about who Jesus is, all leading up to this. Why does it even matter? What will this knowledge do for us? This is what it does for us. Jesus Christ has overcome. He has overcome the world. He has overcome sin and death. He has overcome everything that is wrong in our life. And we may be experiencing the worst possible things in life right now. Cancer, loss of loved ones, job loss, um, broken relationships, fear of the unknown. But keep in mind, Jesus has overcome all of that by the power of his blood. He's exactly who he says he is. He is the creator of the heavens and the earth. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Jesus is that seed of promise that came to overcome sin and death. He put enmity, tension between the woman, between humanity and Satan. Jesus is our great high priest. In the order of Melchizedek, he intercedes on our behalf. When we don't know what to pray, the Holy Spirit prays for us. When we don't know what to say to God, all we have to do is fall on our face. And the Holy Spirit will intercede for us. That's why Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. Because it is finished. Jesus is the head of a better and more superior priesthood. One that doesn't have to offer sacrifices of animals every day, day in and day out. His sacrifice was enough. His sacrifice ended all sacrifice. The only sacrifice that's due today is ours to him. That's all that's left to sacrifice. We sacrifice us for the sake of him. So we live for him because he saved us. We love because he first loved us. Jesus is the angel of the Lord. He's God in the flesh. He showed the people in the Old Testament that God is definitely one God who's revealed in three persons. And finally, above all else, Jesus is the King of Kings. Turn to Revelation chapter 19. And let's let the Word of God tell us who Jesus really is. Verse 11, Revelation 19. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. 
He will rule them with an iron what? Scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and mighty men of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, small and great. Jesus is coming on a white horse. He is called faithful and true. He is the judge of all things, and his name is the word of God. He wields a sword with which he will strike down the nations. Verse 15 says that he will rule them with an iron scepter. Why? Because the scepter will not depart from Judah. Genesis 49 is that, is that prophecy that says that the king of kings is, always, is going to come through Judah and he's going to reign forever, victorious. Verse 16, on his robe and on his thigh he has that name written. What's that name? King of kings and Lord of lords. When we hear that phrase, it kind of, it sounds real nice, but I want you to think about that. All the kings of the earth bow down at the feet of Jesus now and forever. Lord of lords. When a nobleman is found, say, in England, when you would walk up to him, you would refer to him as Lord. And we've talked about what Lord is in the Bible. When you see all the caps, it's Yahweh. It's the covenant name of God. But the other Lord, with, a, with all lowercase, that's just a way of honoring somebody. Jesus is Lord, Yahweh, over all lords. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. No one is as high or exalted as Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God. Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He is the Prince of Peace. He's wonderful. He's our counselor. He's our mighty God. When he met Jacob, he told him, I am God Almighty, El Shaddai. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So why does Genesis, knowing that Jesus is in Genesis, matter? Because Peter tells us all to be prepared. What are we to be prepared for? We're to be prepared to give a reason for the hope that we have within us. We're supposed to defend our faith. We need to understand that Jesus didn't just come on the scene 2,000 years ago as a created being who came to do a certain thing for God. No, Jesus has existed before all things. Jesus is the creator of all things. Jesus is the reason that we live. Apart from Christ, there is no us. Apart from Christ, there's no reason to live because all the family members that we love, all the things that we do, none of that, it's all filthy rags apart from Christ. God put us here for a purpose. You know, we sang, the kids sing about the King of Kings and, and that we're to bring glory to his name. That's why we need to recognize Jesus for who he is. That's why Genesis is so awesome that, it, that God gave us all this understanding of who Jesus would be before he ever actually walked the earth. 
Jesus loved us enough to set us free. He loved us enough to set us free from the bondage of sin and slavery. He loved us enough to make us a new creation in him. He loved us enough to walk down the Via Dolorosa with a cross beam on his back. After being beaten nearly to death, most men would have died just from the beating that he took. He walked to that cross and he hung on that cross and he died in our place. And he said, it is finished. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. The only thing that's going to save us is the love of God. Jesus Christ paid the price. The Holy Spirit draws. So how can anyone leave knowing all that the Bible tells us about who Jesus is? How can you not? How can you not stand in awe of, and wonder, why am I even here? And then, when you have the answer there from the book, how can you walk out and not want to honor him with your life? How can anyone think that they're going to stand guiltless in the eyes of a holy God in his presence? We can't. That's why we need Jesus. That's why we need the King of Kings. The Bible says that those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. We can't just say, well, I believe, and that's good enough. I'm going to live my life the way I want to live it. No. Who sits on a throne? Who sits on a throne? Kings sit on thrones, right? Well, there's only one throne in heaven, and the king of kings is who sits on it. And all too often, we let ourselves creep our way up to the throne, and we sit on it not our place so this is what I ask of you today if you know the king of kings where do you stand with him right now if, if he knows you if he's your savior and your lord are you submitted to his lordship or are you walking as a person who sits on the throne if you don't know him as savior and lord if you have not committed your life to Jesus Christ what's stopping you if the Spirit of God draws, we can be saved. I can't know who the Spirit's drawing. You can't know who the Spirit's drawing. I can't know who's saved and who's not saved. I can only be a judge of fruit. I can see if it's ripe. I can see if it's, if it's spoiled. I can see if it's no good. I can see if it's growing on a vine. That's it. I can't know. All I know is, is that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And I'm not ashamed of it. Jesus Christ died for your sins. Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He and he alone can save you. Don't walk out of here without knowing that that is the gospel. Jesus Christ came as God in the flesh to pay the price for all that we do wrong. All our sin. He came and he paid that price on that cross. So what I would ask for you is that you would believe and repent and let Christ give you a new heart. Surrender to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Let's pray together. Father, I'm, I'm humbled by your presence. I'm humbled knowing that 
I'm a wretched, wicked sinner who deserves hell. I don't deserve to be saved, God, but by the power of the cross, by Jesus' perfect sacrifice, God, you've made a way. And I thank you that you've saved me. Lord, I pray for every person here in this room today. I pray, God, that you would let your spirit do his work. Holy Spirit, come and just move in the hearts and the minds of those that are here. God, I pray that your gospel would just, just radiate through hearts today. Lord, we praise you. We thank you that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Jesus, you have created all things. Nothing's been made that you didn't make. You have made a way for each one of us to be in a perfect relationship with you. Father, I pray that you would forgive us where we sin, that you would restore each one of us, that you would help us each one to surrender to you every day, every moment of every day, God, that we would live our lives for you and not for ourselves. Lord, forgive us for wanting to be in control. Forgive us for wanting to sit on the throne. God, we recognize you and you alone as the Lord of lords, that that throne belongs to you and you alone. Father, we don't want to sit on it. We want to be guided by you. We want your spirit to be our guide. So Lord, give us that peace that surpasses all human understanding right now. Father, help each person here to know the gospel and to respond in kind. And Father, be glorified by every change you've made today in each one of our hearts. God, we honor you and we love you. We praise you in Jesus' precious name, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen. Okay, so there are, there are, no, there is no one here to sing. And you guys know I'm not going to sing. So that being said, I do want to offer just a few moments. I'll be down here. We don't have to have any music playing unless Caleb wants to play some. But I want to offer every person in this room the opportunity to come forward and to to pray if you need anything, if you, if you need to be prayed over, if, if you need to give your life to Christ, I'm up here. I'll be up here for a few. Um, we're getting out kind of early because of the, you know, having the kids, and that's a good thing. But I don't want you guys to leave here without making sure that whatever it is you need to turn over to God, whether it be praise or, or, or a need or anything, my prayer is that you would take care of it before you even walk out the door. Don't leave it undone. All right? Thank everybody for putting up with me for the last five weeks. Um, Caleb's dad, Kent Spann, will be here for the next two weeks to, uh, to lead us, and I'm excited to hear what he's got to share with us. And then who knows after that. It's, I'm just glad to be able to serve Pastor Greg in any way I can and to serve our church. So may God be glorified by everything we do and say. So let's take a few moments, and if we need to pray, we'll pray, okay? And God bless everybody. Thank you, dear.